Kia ora I'm Gwen Compton and welcome to Local Aotearoa, a podcast dedicated to what's happening in New Zealand's world of local government. Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Local Aotearoa, which is the second part of our look at local government elections. Before we get underway, I'd like to address the elephant in the room. Now, I know that last episode I said that you're going to have to wait for an announcement about my plans for next year, and as it turns out, you didn't even have to wait two weeks. I'd actually made up my mind back in May that I wasn't going to stand for re-election, and it was just a question of when I was going to announce it. I did briefly wonder about standing for just the mayoralty, but I decided against that on the basis that it wasn't fair for anyone if my heart wasn't 100% in it, And I didn't want to be in a position where it looked like I was preferring to reign in hell rather than serving in heaven by going for just the mayoralty or bust. And don't get me wrong, that's a perfectly legitimate strategy for some people, but it just wasn't for me. So why did I I announce now? It was getting super awkward with more and more people asking me if I was going to stand again, or just outright assuming I was, and... I'd tell them that I was going to make an announcement at the end of this year or early next year and that would just come off as almost like a Sherman-esque sort of denial that usually ended up with them going away and telling people I was going to run. So rather than keeping getting anyone's hopes up and honestly just making life easier for myself too in the process, I thought I'd just rip off the band-aid now and um, to be honest it feels great to have done so and to get it out there. As I said on Friday when I announced it, We still have a massively busy remainder of the triennium in front of us at council uh, and there's some big decisions to make which will have a huge impact on how Carpety is able to meet the challenges facing us over the next three decades. So I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into those. But ultimately there's other things that I want to achieve professionally uh, and not being at the council table from the conclusion of this triennium is going to give me more freedom to push a lot harder for the type of comprehensive local government reform that local, uh, sorry, that Aotearoa New Zealand so badly needs and that I've been so vocal about as well. So all that leads to the question of what am I going to get up to after this triennium? In an ideal world, I'm going to head off consulting on local government and I'll be pushing harder for that sector-wide reform that we so badly need. I haven't ruled out standing again in local government at some point down the road because I'm only 38 so I figure that I still, hopefully anyway, have a few useful years and ideas in me yet. With that out of the way, I also just wanted to add a few extra anendums to the previous episode, in particular relating to the mural races going on around the country that are starting to shape up. Now the first thing is the announcement of Jake Law's mayoral campaign in Auckland uh, and that was announced shortly after I recorded the previous episode and that um, in an article covering that uh, was on stuff it also noted that 2019 candidate Craig Lord is going to run again in Auckland so that now makes three declared candidates in Auckland and about that third candidate which is Leo Malloy there's actually a really Entertaining? That's probably the the best word to describe it. It's an entertaining profile piece on Leo Malloy that's up on stuff at the moment, which is well worth a read. There's some uh, colourful comments. Colourful might be one way to describe it. There's a lot of other words that sort of came up, were a bit shocking at times. Um, But it's worth a read, and you can make up your own mind about what you think about uh, Mr Malloy as a candidate. 
Um, John McManus from Stuff, he also wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago which take, took a look at the lay of the land with a year to go before Wellington's local government elections and it surveyed what are likely to be the big issues at stake in the, the capital. And the story also included a quick look at who potentially might stand um, because no one, as far as I'm aware, has actually announced their candidacy yet. So alongside the potential for Mayor Andy Foster to seek re-election, the article also mentioned uh, former Deputy Mayor and former Wellington City Councillor Paul Eagle, who's now the Labour Party MP for the seat of Rongatai, as a possible contender. Now, Paul Eagle has, uh, has he said publicly, and he's worded it very carefully, that he doesn't currently have plans to run. Currently being the, uh, I guess, the important word in that sentence. Um, but it also, that article also mentioned that uh, councillors such as Fleur Fitzsimmons or Jill Day would be potential candidates as well. And noted that uh, Jill Day was the deputy mayor under previous mayor Justin Lester. Uh, and it did also have a quick look at the potential of Justin Lester staging a political comeback. And it sort of played down the prospects of that. But I mean, look, if you look back at uh, politics over the last uh, five years dating back to 2016, you would never rule anything out anymore, I think. There's been some movement down in Dunedin with their mayoral race. It looks like uh, there's possibly three confirmed candidates there. Uh, Councillors Radich, Houlihan and Van der Vers. I hope they've got that right, Van der Vers. Um, they've confirmed they're going to stand for the mayoralty there. And I'm assuming that the incumbent mayor, Aaron Hawkins, is likely to stand again as well. There's also been a little discussion in Christchurch. There's rumours uh, hotting up about whether Deputy Mayor Andrew, Andrew Turner is going to run for the mayoralty there. As if you remember from last week, I think I mentioned that um, the current mayor there, Lyanne Dizel, is going to be standing down at the end of this term. Um, but he's yet to make a decision yet. And there's also the coastal ward by-election in Christchurch, actually, on the day I recorded the previous episode, which saw Celeste Donovan win that. Um, and what was interesting about that election is, you'll remember I discussed the role of political parties in local body elections last week. And the Labour Party candidate in that by-election finished up fifth overall. Now, by-elections, I mean, they're odd in a, local, oh, sorry, in a central government's sense for Parliament, they always throw up unique issues, and we've seen that, uh, such as when Winston Peters managed to win the Northland by-election. He's quite a, uh, a skilled operator at winning by-elections. Um, but in local government, it really gets very quirky at by-elections. So I think you can read maybe a little bit into it about that, political party branding isn't the be-all and end-all of local government elections. It can help, it can hinder. Um, but yeah, it's not a guaranteed way to get in. So you can't necessarily ride the popularity or the organisational structure of a political party to help you get through in a local government election. Anyway, on with the show. We left off last week having put in place almost everything that we need to run a local government election. And we'd put in place the systems that voters will interact with. Now as this week's the second part of this look at local government elections, and it's more about the election itself and the campaign, we're going to have more of a focus on what life is like for candidates and uh, incumbent elected members during that election. Now one thing I didn't mention is that Unlike general elections, which are conducted by the Electoral Commission, local government elections are conducted by each council individually. Now, there's some coordination between uh, where you've got a regional council, obviously overlapping with a whole lot of district and city councils. Obviously, you don't want to be sending out multiple ballot papers. It all gets coordinated into one. Uh, 
but they do operate individually in terms of having their own electoral officers. Uh, now, councils do have to appoint an electoral officer, obviously, and this can be a council employee, or they can appoint an external private company to take up that role. Uh, I know of at least a couple of private election companies that run this. I think there's independent election services, and there's Election NZ, or is it Election Z? Elections with a Z. I'm never quite sure how to say it. Um, and they fulfil that sort of role, and they provide services when it comes to things like collecting and counting votes on polling day. And they obviously quite often will consult for local government and many of the different processes that lead up to determining things like representation reviews, voting systems, Māori wards, and all those sorts of things as well. Now, just like in the general election, the electoral officer's job is to conduct the local government election as specified by the Local Electoral Act. And they have a variety of powers and protections under that act to ensure that not only can they do their job independently, but also to ensure that all candidates play by the same rules. Now before we launch into the actual election, it's also worth covering off a couple of other things to make sure that we know the lay of the land. The first is that, in a similar vein to general elections, in local government elections, we don't really have any sort of formal caretaker conventions. Councils are, in theory, able to make decisions right up to the election itself. Now, while in central government, there's a sort of vague agreement about deferring major decisions or making them in conjunction with opposition parties, as well as only making major appointments for six months or so to allow the returned or new government to confirm the people in those positions, um, but for local government, that's not really a thing. Councils can and do routinely keep making decisions right up to the election. Now, as to whether or not that's a good thing, that's for other, I think that's a, it's a worthy debate, but it's one we'll take care of, a, of another time. Um, and it's, I think it's quite closely linked to the length of the triennium, whether you have a through, well, triennium is probably not the right word if you're thinking about it, extending it out to four years, but it's quite, quite the, closely linked to that, I think. Um, now, the second thing to take into consideration is that councillors and mayors and all your local board members or your community board members, where they're seeking re-election, they enter into this sort of weird limbo world where they're simultaneously candidates as well as still being elected representatives. And this matters because of a thing called predetermination. Now what predetermination means is your elected local government representative has, through what they've said or their actions, given cause for people to believe that they have already made their minds up about an issue and that they aren't considering all relevant information or feedback coming from their communities. Now this predetermination exists right throughout a triennium with regards to all decisions that come before councils. But as you can imagine, during an election campaign where issues that may result in council making decisions on them or decisions that are live at the moment are always going to be at play. They're always going to be a football during our campaigns, and rightfully so. So suddenly predetermination becomes this giant elephant in the room. Now, I think we can all agree that given we vote to elect councillors, which is at its heart a political act, it's a bit weird that we suddenly don't want incumbent candidates to have opinions or positions on issues that are relevant to their communities. It's not something that members of parliament really have to worry about to the same extent. So it's very much a quirk of local government. Now, thankfully, there is some common sense advice about this. And there's a running joke in the local government sector, and it's usually attributed to a previous Auditor General. 
and that is that elected members are supposed to have an open mind on decisions before council, but not necessarily an empty one. So it's generally this reasonable position that prevails, but every so often you do hear about predetermination popping up. And that's whether it's uh, been a warning that's, I guess, somewhat been issued or advised to candidates about how they should conduct themselves in the campaign, especially if there's some quite controversial and heated issues going on in the community. Or often it can actually be weaponized against them, by, especially by people coming in uh, challenging an incumbent. Now that aside, if you're wanting to be a candidate and you've declared your intention to stand, and look, I'm assuming that if you're at that point, you've already carefully considered your reasons for standing, the time commitment, the impacts on your family and your finances and all that. If you're taking things seriously, you're going to be furiously putting together what your policy platform will be. You'll be sorting out your campaign team of volunteers. You'll be fundraising if you have to all while remembering to keep accurate records of donations. Um, you'll be developing your advertising collateral like pamphlets, newspaper ads, election hoardings. You'll be planning out a calendar of events. Um, there's quite a lot going on. Now, this is a really important point to make, and it's drawing on my own experience of having been involved in both general election campaigns as well as my own 2019 local government campaign. Running for public office can be a big commitment from both a time and a financial perspective, especially if you're standing for the mayoralty or as a councillor in a major city where those are effectively full-time positions in their own right. For those couple of months before polling day, it's not inconceivable that the campaign in itself becomes a full-time job. There's public meetings and events to attend, there's hoardings to put up, there's pamphlets to be delivered, signs to be waved, advertising to be designed and placed, uh, speeches to be written, interviews to be done, emails and questionnaires to respond to, lots of phone calls to be made and taken. You've got to do uh, research on various issues that are coming up. You've got to develop policies in response to those and release, release those. Uh, the only limit really is the time and money that you have available to put into it. Now in 2019, because of the reality of needing to still help pay the bills and feed the family, I still worked full time throughout the campaign. But I'd hoarded up my annual leave specifically for the campaign. So there would usually be at least one or two weekdays dedicated to the campaign each week. And that ramped up as we got closer to polling day. And I'd obviously be busy across both days at the weekend. But I also had to pick and choose what sort of events I did. So because I was standing both for the mayoralty and as a district-wide councillor, when, say, there were public debates, which Grey Power organised here, I went to the mayoral debates, um, but then I didn't go to the district-wide candidate debates. And that was literally because I had mapped out all the annual leave I had and I literally could not afford to take any more time off because I did not have any more annual leave and I couldn't sacrifice the income. So that's the sort of balancing act you get into. And this leads us on to our next point, is that local government campaigns are not necessarily cheap either. When you factor in things like getting election signs uh, and pamphlets, you, you've got to get them designed, you've got to get them printed, you'll probably end up wanting to run ads on the radio, in newspapers or on social media, you need to get sign writing done to your car or whatever vehicle you've got, you'll need to host a website and set up email, uh, you'll want to pay for any events that you want to put on yourself. 
the costs will add up very quickly. Now I spent around 14,000 on my 2019 campaign and that was entirely self-funded. I didn't take any donations and I think we ended up in the week post the election having only about $100 available to us while we were waiting for the next payday to come in. So we literally threw everything we could afford to at that election, especially in the last sort of month that we were, I realised it was going to be very close for the mayoralty and I had a shot and I just had to try and do everything I could. Um, now the question of whether or not to accept donations is a really tough one and it's entirely dependent on your individual circumstances. I would say that deciding to not accept donations does save you on a little paperwork at the end of the campaign and that you've got no do donations to declare when you're completing those candidate returns. Not taking donations does however potentially limit what you're able to do. As I said before I had to pick and choose and terms of uh, what I did with my personal time. I also had to pick and choose really carefully in terms of what I did with my local media buying. Uh, now to be fair, being a public relations professional, that does help when it came to knowing how to stretch my ad dollars, which placements delivered best bang for buck, and how to get unpaid, content, uh, unpaid coverage by generating content. But you'll always be left wondering about whether you'd been able to spend more and being able to turn out more supporters if you had taken something like donations. So that's always a careful balancing up. Um, and I would say that there's actually nothing wrong with candidates accepting donations. Like I said, elections can be expensive. Uh, now it's possible to run them on the smell of an oily rag, but it's just one of those things you have to balance up. And that's why we've got all these uh, laws around declaring those donations, so there's transparency around it. Now. With all of that taken care of, and while it may sound obvious, the key to winning in a local government election is getting your supporters to vote. And that's because turnout in local government elections is terrible. In the 2019 local government election, as a country, we only managed to average 41.9% turnout. Now, as I said, this is terrible in terms of voter engagement. But it does mean that every vote cast has far more of an impact on the overall result. To just illustrate how important every vote is, in the Wellington City mayoral contest in 2019, there were just 62 votes separating the incumbent, Justin Lester, from eventual victor, Andy Foster. And Wellington only managed turnout of 39.9% in their election. Now I know it's cliche to say that every vote counts, but they really do, especially when so many people don't bother to vote. Imagine if you were someone who was sympathetic towards Justin Lester, and, or you didn't like Andy Foster, but you didn't end up getting around to vote in 2019. All it would have taken, you know, you just needed another 63 votes to turn, to turn the result. It's just, that's an incredibly narrow result. But before you get to that point where you're worrying about what the margin of victory or defeat is, you actually need to get on the ballot. Now that means getting nominated. Now nomination day is defined under the local, electro, local electoral act as the 57th day before polling day. Now if polling day being on the 8th of October 2022, by my reckoning that should make nomination day the 12th of August 2022. 
Nominations are usually open for a few weeks prior to nomination day. So my advice is to get your form in as soon as possible. From memory, I got my form in on the first day that nominations were open, which rather nicely made me be the first person to appear on the list of nominees on the council's website. Now, while that's a nice reason to get your nomination in early, and I had a whole thing going that I was the first choice, and that was because I had been the first person to announce my candidacy, I was the first person to get on the nomination list, um, so you can see the little joke I had running there. The real reason you want to get your form in as early as possible is that there, if there are any issues with your nomination form, then your council's electoral officer should get in touch with you and give you a chance to fix them. You don't want to be that candidate who lodges their form on the last day possible only to have it disallowed due to a technicality which could have been easily fixed had it been discovered earlier. And I'm aware of at least one instance locally where that happened where someone who would have been a great candidate unfortunately got their form in on the last day and there was a technical issue in terms of um, what they'd done which meant that they weren't able to get nominated and as I said had that form gotten in earlier, then that could have been rectified. Now, as part of that form, you'll usually need to provide a passport-sized photograph. Uh, sometimes you can provide a physical copy. Other times you'll be able to email a digital one. Um, that will depend on what, how your council set up. As well as a short blurb about yourself. Now, this, um, this brings me to another relevant point. As I mentioned earlier, local government elections aren't run by the Electoral Commission. Every council organises and runs its own election. Some manage it in-house, but many contracted it out, as I discussed earlier. There's a few companies that specialise in it. Now, there's a push on to get some more centralisation of local government elections, and that's in, that's in part due to a desire to get some more consistency across the 78 local authorities by both candidates and the publics. But it's also fallen out of a bit of um, frustration in the, over the time it takes to get results. There's also moves to reform electoral law and whatnot, and we'll probably see that come through in the local government review that's taking place. But this really goes back to um, that some for some people, the only thing they'll do is that blurb and that passport photo. That's all the campaigning they'll do. And... Believe it or not, it can be successful. We had one candidate up here, I think they were in the Paraparaumu ward, and they didn't campaign at all other than supplying that passport photo and having that blurb in the um, document. Now, I think they were benefited by the fact that at the time, candidates were listed alphabetically on the single transferable vote uh, paper, and I think I'll discuss this a bit later on. But it meant that people went one, two, three, four down their form, and they ended up getting in on the basis of that quirk. Uh, which is gutting if you're a candidate who's worked hard all election and you get defeated by the um, the, the order of the nomination, uh, the order of the ballot paper. That's just hugely frustrating. But that's also democracy. Little quirks like that happen. Anyway, that was a bit of a, a uh, sidetrack there. Now... One thing that sort of pops to mind as well while I'm thinking about this is that while your local council will push to get people enrolled um, in the lead up, and that includes the ratepayers role, which is for people who own property in a city or district but no, don't necessarily live there, or they don't live there, um, those people don't only get one 
vote for no matter how many lots they owned across the district uh, but that's an additional thing that takes place around the country because obviously they're rate payers as well hence why it's called the rate payers role and the idea is that they get that representation because they are contributing in taxes and there's a whole debate about whether that should be in place or not and you can argue it either way but as a candidate you you're going to want to encourage people to enroll to vote or to update their details on the electoral roll because with turnout being as low as as it is you want to make sure as many of your supporters are actually on the electoral roll now the saturday after nomination day is typically when campaigning formally kicks off especially in terms of putting up physical electoral hoardings uh, though this may differ depending on your local authority's district plan so it's worth checking that district plan uh, to see when you're allowed to put signs up uh, I, from memory up here in Carpety, we're able to put them up like i said the saturday after nomination day but I think in Wellington it's not until September potentially that you're allowed to put signs up. So it differs greatly. And I remember there was, I think some candidates, or at least one candidate in Auckland, might have gotten in a little trouble, or they may have had some bad press over the fact that they started doing some digital signage advertising in Auckland before they were technically allowed to. Though there was some debate about whether if you're buying digital ads on a big billboard, whether that counts in the same way as putting up an electoral hoarding. Your district plan is also going to uh, have some specifications in terms of the overall um, area of your sign, the lettering size potentially, the number of words, height, distances from curbs and properties and all that. Generally that should be consistent with uh, national regulation on that, but not always the case. So it always pays to check and if you're uncertain you can email your electoral officer and ask them and that's actually what I did locally here as well because I noticed that there was a discrepancy between uh, um, at the stage it was the proposed district plan it hadn't been made operative yet so there's a discrepancy between the the specifications that were in the district plan and what the actual uh, the legislation said and I emailed through and I got the reply back saying oh yes we got that wrong go with the national level legislation in terms of what your sign size was and that's it's just making sure you're following all the rules now I should add at this point if you're in doubt about any possible services and it's water or power cables or sewerage or fiber optics that might be running underneath the ground where you're planning to dig post holes for your signs be sure to call the number of your local utility um, companies you you've might remember there's those uh, dial before you dig signs that you quite often see now nobody wants to be that candidate who puts a shovel through a sewage pipe for obvious reasons and you definitely sure as hell don't want to put it through any power cables or phone lines you will not be popular it will not look good for you um, and obviously it is not safe now your council's probably going to have rules around things like human hoardings that's where you stand on the roadside and you wave signs um, now that's a lot of fun to do and I quite enjoyed doing it in my campaign. I don't know if it was strictly within the rules, um, but I got a lot of good toots out of people as they drove by and I got a lot of people commenting to me at markets when they saw me after saying, oh yes, I saw you there at half past six in the morning waving your sign. Um, so you, you want to check things like that. You want to check things about, say, 
it's generally probably in your local uh, waste management bylaw around the delivery of political material into letterboxes. Uh, now as a rule of thumb here, you should generally be able to put political campaign material into nearly any letterbox, um, but as a courtesy, it's usually safer to avoid letterboxes that say things like addressed mail only, or something more specific like that, or quite often I think the Wellington Regional Bylaw, we've all got our own editions of that around the region now, but it's generally coordinated. I think there's a restriction on being able to put mail into, oh sorry, putting pamphlets and those sorts of things into letterboxes which are clearly full, which makes sense. If someone's home, you don't want to go clogging up their letterbox any, anymore. Um, and you can decide where you draw the line in terms of that address mail only or no junk mail. A lot of people just avoid no junk mail entirely. Uh, if you pay a distribution company to deliver your pamphlets, they will avoid no junk mail letterboxes entirely. But um, quite often there are carve-outs for political material and candidates' material to go into most letterboxes anyway. The other things that take place, uh, as I was talking about a bit earlier on before, there are meet the candidate events and debates. Uh, there's press releases that you'll want to send out. And so you want to get lists of all your local media organisations. And that's not just newspapers. Uh, this, you might have one or two or even three or four. I think we might have about four local newspapers up here in Carpety in terms of physical printed ones. Um, but there's also blogs and online newspapers as well. There's all your social media sites, your community sites that you want to get in touch with. You might have some local radio stations as well. In some cities there are local TV stations still that you might want to get in touch with. Um, you'll want to have a look at what all the various public events are coming up over the campaign and plan those out, which ones you're going to attend to, what's, um, what sort of collateral you might be allowed. You, quite often you can approach organisers and say, hey, I'd like to have a stand at your, your event. Um, Sometimes they'll have rules and they'll say, hey, actually, no, you can't have a stand or you can't hand out material here. You're welcome to turn up and be branded up the wazoo if you want uh, in terms of um, hoodies or jackets or that sort of thing. But, you know, please don't hand out material. Just go there and be seen. So just be aware of that stuff. Show some courtesies around that as well. Uh, and sometimes forgiveness is uh, easier to ask for than permission. I did that a couple of times and people are fine about it. They sort of appreciate that you're not necessarily... A seasoned professional in it or that you're doing it with good intentions anyway. Uh, now this is all campaigning is a fun experience but it is also a very demanding one. You're going to meet some really interesting people and there's an emphasis on the word interesting there uh, and you'll find yourself responding to more candidate surveys than you ever thought possible. Uh, I lost track of how many I responded to but I remember staying up quite late going through and trying to answer all the questions and that was in part out of respect to the effort that people put into putting these together and sure they might only be going out to maybe a few dozen people but actually it's just showing respect to the fact that they're engaging with the political process and making sure that you're in good faith showing people what you're standing for and what's important to you and we, what your values are as well. Now as local government elections they're conducted by Postal vote, a bit like the um, interest election is up in Auckland at the moment. So you also need to build that into your planning around your campaign too. Now typically voting documents are delivered to voters uh, around about three weeks before polling day. And the close off of voters returning these by post in order them, for them to be delivered back to council in time is usually the Wednesday or Tuesday before polling day. 
This usually means that your campaign actually reaches a crescendo in those third to second weeks before polling day. But after that final Wednesday, you'll find that things sort of start to quieten down. So if you're planning one pamphlet drop to support your campaign, you generally want to time it for when voting papers start appearing in mailboxes. And I remember it was it was quite cool when I was going around delivering pamphlets and you'd pop them into a mailbox and you'd catch sight of the voting papers that had been there as well. So you knew that when whoever was getting out their voting papers was also getting your um, pamphlet with it as well. Now while voters can still hand deliver their voting papers after that cutoff for posting them back, and that's usually to one of your council service centres or libraries, or sometimes they might, um, they might put up booths somewhere else for people to do it. Your attention does start to, in those final few days, does start to turn to things like taking down all your election signs. Um, and that has to be done by midnight of the day before polling day. And now, that's actually an important point, is that in a similar manner to general elections, no campaigning is allowed to take place on polling day itself. That includes things like your branded car. Now, I remember that because my garage was full of uh, all my hoarding signs and all the timber to put them up um, and a whole lot of other rubbish that sort of accumulated up throughout the campaign, my sign written car was stuck in the driveway. So I had to go out and sellotape rubbish bags over the sign writing on it just in case anyone walking up or down the street saw it. Um, you also might want to look at your social media channels. The, the advice on that is generally is just don't post on them at all. If you want to go a step further, you can generally, on Twitter, you can unpublish your, you will, sorry, unpublish, you can delete, temporarily temporarily delete your Twitter account. Um, you can generally do the same for Instagram or you can, for Facebook pages, you can unpublish them. So there's different things you can do. And the idea is that you're not proactively putting anything out there. If, if someone wants to go visit your website on election day, that's fine. They're actually allowed to do that. You can leave your election sign up there, but you don't want to be running any ads or anything. You're not proactively campaigning at all. Um, so you can actually generally just enjoy election day off, at least in terms of uh, polling day for us, at least until midday, which is when the polls close. Um, to go out, have breakfast, enjoy yourself. You've, you've, you've earned it after what's generally quite a gruelling campaign. Um, one thing you might want to think about before election day is that you can actually appoint scrutineers to oversee the counting of the votes. Um, and their role, a scrutineer's role, is to make sure the vote count is done in accordance with the law. There's a heap of rules and requirements around scrutineers and what they can and can't do, um, which I'm not going to go into detail here. You can, Your council will provide information about that. But scrutineers do perform a really important role in just providing that transparency and accountability around the vote counting process. Now, I didn't I didn't organise any scrutineers because I wasn't particularly worried. Some people are. Um, some people just do it because it's a nice way to get people, your volunteers, continuing to be involved throughout the process. Now, just going back a step, we've sort of run very quickly through a campaign, but going back a step a bit here, um, and this is before nominations even, your local council usually puts out a candidate's information handbook, and that covers all the major things you need to be aware of when running your campaign. It'll outline the legal requirements, uh, and that's things like campaign expense limits, uh, and that will differ if you're running for the mayoralty, or it depends on what sort of, I guess, representation structure your council has. But say here in Carpenter, we've got the mayoralty, we've got the district-wide councillors, we've got the ward councillors, and we've got community boards, and each one of those has separate expense limits on them. Um, it also details things like authorisation statements, it'll talk about where you can put, if your council has uh, 
designated areas on council land where you can put signs up. Generally, they the councils try to provide some land or some areas around the city or district where you can do that. Um, so you're not necessarily limited to having to use people's uh, berms or or fences. Um, it'll also have uh, contact details for election officials. Um, it'll have the boundaries for your wards and all those sorts of things in there. So it's a really helpful resource to familiar self familiarise yourself with and it's actually worth looking at your council's previous one uh, if you're thinking about running as well just to be aware of what they've done previously. Now your council will also publish what's called a pre-election report and that should generally come out before the formal campaign period begins. Now that's essentially a truncated review of the local authority's current situation, what its long-term plan is focused on uh, and it's generally created to give both candidates and voters a better understanding of the state of play in your city or district or region of regional councils obviously. Now because this only does come out in time for the campaign itself it's really useful to be across your local authorities other key documents and reports and some of the, the big ones to keep in mind are whatever their current long-term plan is and in terms of the 2022 elections we've all put in place our long-term plans this year in 2021 um, what their most recent annual plan is so that process takes place uh, in the first half of 2022 you want to have a look at what their district or city plan well, i think they're all called district plans aren't they district plan or natural resources plan if it's a regional council uh, have a look at any of the major strategies or policies that might be in place that are of interest to you have a look at what their previous annual report was and you want to do all those things so that you're as fully informed as possible about what's going on in terms of the actual operations and plans and strategies of that uh, council that you're thinking of standing for. Anyway, we'll go back to polling day. And as I mentioned uh, before, polling day is a case of hurry up and wait because you can't do anything and polling doesn't close until 12pm and that's when the counting begins. Now depending on what sort of systems your council has in place and whether you're using first past the post or single transferable vote they can all have an influence on when you'll find the result. Here in Carpety we didn't find out until I think it was about nearly 11pm on polling day um, in terms of what the results were. And that was in part because of all the iterations needed to get the five district-wide candidates selected uh, and the view that they didn't want to release the results via drip feed, they wanted to have them all together. And from memory I think there was, in terms of the District Health Board, which that election happened at the same time, there was a huge number of candidates for that as well, so a lot of iterations to take place there. So it can take quite a while to work through a single transferable vote. Now other cities and districts had results much sooner, uh, and in Wellington I remember they had a situation where they had to collect up all the votes and then they sent them down to Christchurch to get processed down there where I think, I think from memory, and this is very much off the top of my head here, not on the script, I think they had engaged a third party to do that for them, hence why they had to fly the uh, ballots down to Christchurch. Now, if you remember earlier I said that the final result was 62 votes between uh, Justin Lester and Andy Foster in Wellington. But when they got through to the final iteration of the preliminary count, um, which I think was possibly on the Sunday from memory, um, there were 715 votes between the two candidates as well. So you can see how that that changes over time. And a part of part of the reason for that is that those results announced on the night are just that, they're preliminary results. Now the final take usually takes a week or so to get that final count. And that's where they're counting all the special votes 
Um, and they usually do a recount of the whole thing as well, just to make sure they've done it all properly as well. But candidates can also request a recount if they believe the margin's small enough to justify it. Now, this is just some random process stuff to keep in mind if you're a candidate as well. And that's a good one is before polling day is to get the phone numbers of your opponents so that if you're unsuccessful, you can get in contact with them to concede the election and congratulate them on their win. Um, generally, that will be in a in the campaign book. Most candidates typically list a phone number there, and it probably will be their personal phone number because we're a small country. Um, now, here in Kapiti, because our results came in so late, I did try and uh, call Mayor Guru, uh, but I couldn't get a hold of him. So instead, I sent him a text message. Uh, he replied back to me a bit later on, and then we spoke the next day. Now, after polling day... Your responsibilities as a candidate, either successful or unsuccessful, don't actually stop. You still need to declare both your election expenses and any donations you received. And your candidate handbook, as I mentioned earlier, will usually advise you of what you need to include in these um, returns. And then the forms for those returns will be available on your council's website. Now there are penalties for not filing these returns, so keeping good records of everything you've spent in, or anything you've received in terms of donations becomes really invaluable at this point. Now as I've said earlier, I made this part of the election process so much easier by having not accepted donations, though you still do need to file a nil return if that's the case. And off the top of my head, I, I do believe there's an unsuccessful candidate somewhere in the South Island who was recently found guilty of having not filed their um, election returns, and that was despite several attempts by the electoral officer to get them to do so, including after the cut-off date for return. So they were pretty generous in trying to get them to actually do the return without actually resorting to any sort of legal means to, to um, incentivize them or punish them for not doing so. And there are actual penalties involved if you don't do this, because it is a really important part of the process. It offers transparency around how much you've spent and how you financed your campaign, and that's actually really important in terms of the ongoing accountability of you as an elected representative. Now the final point I would make, and this is whether you win or whether you lose, is that you should have some sort of function after the election to thank your volunteers. Now we hosted a barbecue for my volunteers to thank them for their amazing efforts and as I said earlier the reality is it's very hard to run a meaningful campaign without volunteers. You could in theory pay people to do all the various bits of um, manual labour you need during your campaign, whether it's uh, you could hire a builder to go around and erect and take down all your electoral hoardings or you could pay, like I said earlier when I was talking about um, mailboxes in terms of delivering pamphlets, you can outsource that to delivery companies to do for you and that too are the big ways that people sometimes do that if they don't necessarily have the volunteer base or they have the money to not necessarily worry but volunteers are the oil which makes political campaigns work so just I can't emphasize this enough thank them for their amazing work it's so important put on a barbecue go to a pub and put a big tab on or something just do something to thank them because they're just so important. They're giving up their time to help you realise your dream. And it'll be because they agree with your values or they're your friends. Um, but it's just so important to acknowledge that they've gone out of their way to help you. Anyway, that's about it for now. 
As we get closer to the 2022 election, I'll likely do an episode on what to expect in those first few weeks and months after being elected to a council. Uh, And likewise, as the various campaigns and races start to ramp up around the country, I'll probably do a more regular look at them as well. And that might almost be where the, the podcast starts to pivot over time as well. And yes, despite the fact that I'm not standing next year, I will be carrying on with local Aotearoa for the foreseeable future. Uh, And now it's with the added bonus, I don't have to organise my own re-election campaign. So hopefully I'm going to have a bit more time to do all those various things that I'd like to do with this podcast going forward. But on that note, I'm Gwen Compton. This is local Aotearoa. Haerera. Authorised by Gwen Compton, 60 Manley Street, Paraparaumu. All opinions expressed on this podcast are my personal views and not necessarily those of the Kapiti Coast District Council.